Isaiah 40 is a chapter that's written for people who are being suffocated by disappointment. They're disappointed with their leaders. They're disappointed with their circumstances. They're disappointed with themselves. And most of all, they're disappointed with God. In verse 27, we hear them saying and crying out continually, my way is hidden from the Lord. My right is being disregarded by my God. And last week we saw that disappointment is always a premature conclusion. We get disappointed because we stop reading before the story ends. In the first 11 verses, God makes Amazing promises of his desire to comfort us. And he shows us that no matter how bad the bad news in our lives is right now, he's got better news to follow. But God knows how our hearts struggle to trust him. He knows how doubts and fears and anxieties rise up in our hearts and make us wonder, is God really able to do what he promises? He tells us that he's going to do great things, but is he able to do them? Our problems seem so big, and God is too small in our minds. So he gives us more in Isaiah 40, in verses 12 through 26, to show us his majesty, his power. And he's saying to us in these words, Behold your God. Oh, come, let us adore him. Let's do that as we read together, beginning at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. 
Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God for his word. Years ago, Kate and I made a commitment to one another in a hospital room at St. Joe's in Elgin. We were reading a radiologist's report that had nothing but bad news in it. Fear was like a vacuum trying to suck us into this giant chasm of despair. We knew that we were in danger, in danger of becoming absorbed with the size of the tumors, the malignancy of the cancer. We were in danger of putting all our hopes in finding the right doctor, the right treatment plan, the right nutritional diet. We knew that if all of these cares would consume our thoughts, that we would lose sight of who God is. So we made a commitment. We said, we're not going to focus on the little sea of cancer. We're going to focus on the big sea of Christ. We decided right then and there that instead of getting preoccupied with asking the why questions, we were going to focus on asking who, what, and how. Who are you, Lord? What do you want to show us and teach us through all this? And how do you want to work through us as we walk along this path with you? Isaiah 40 was so helpful to me back then because it's all about who. Who God is. And if God is willing to show us who he is, then we can wait for his answers to our why questions. Knowing who he is really is enough. So who is God? Well, first he tells us in this passage that God is the majestic, wise creator of all things. Look at the verbs in verse 12. Measured, marked off, and closed, weighed. The idea here is that God is a master craftsman. Creation is his project And he has planned every element of it with precision. There are 326 million cubic miles of water on planet Earth. God can measure all of it in the palm of one of his hands. Think of the vastness of the heavens above. What kind of instruments would we need to measure the galaxies? God says, I can measure the span of all of it in the space between my thumb And my pinky, that's God. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Mount Everest weighs 350 trillion pounds. How did anyone ever figure that out? But that's nothing to God. God can take the mass of the whole earth with its mountains and hills and valleys and canyons and he can weigh it and measure it like we would measure a cup of sugar on a little kitchen scale. He's weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. 
One writer comments, to us it's massive, to God it's manageable. That's how great he is. The earth and everything in it, the world and all its inhabitants belong to the Lord. And verses 13 and 14 tell us how God designed and created the vast heavens and the earth. He didn't need an architect to draw plans. He didn't need a project manager to make sure he stayed on task and kept within budget. He didn't need a superintendent to guide his daily activities. He didn't have to ask anyone for advice. His creative power and his wisdom required no fine-tuning. Verse 13, who has measured or directed the Spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer is no one. Because God understood what needed to be done. He could see right to the heart of the matter. And all he did was speak. And it came into being. Ray Orland describes it beautifully. When God created everything, he needed nothing. All the ideas, all the genius were his alone. God imagined every tropical fish. He established every function of gravity. He shaped galaxies as irregular, spiral, and elliptical. He came up with it all, by himself, alone, out of his own super-intelligence. The pagan gods worked by committee. God the Creator needs no one else, including you and me. Who is God? He's the majestic, wise Creator of all things. And secondly, God is the sovereign Lord of the nations. The people in Isaiah's day were trembling at the power of Babylon. They had heard that they were going to be carried off into exile. And they had Assyria breathing down their necks as well. They were afraid of the power of these nations. But God reminds them in verse 15, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. If you fill up a bucket of water, and carry it across your yard, and it's jostled a little bit, and one drop falls out, are you going to go all the way back to the hose and add in an extra drop to make up for the one that was lost? Of course not. One little drop is not worth the effort. And that's the stature of the nations in comparison to God and his plan for history. It's not that God doesn't love the nations. After all, Jesus died And rose again to become the Lord of the nations. And he sends us into all the world to make disciples of all the nations. So God loves the nations. But what God is reminding us here in verse 15 is that the nations get their significance from him and from him alone. Nations like ours can get so puffed up with our pride and our power. Babylon thought they were were hot stuff. Just like America does. But God is saying here, Babylon, America, you are nothing apart from me. You are like dust on the scales in comparison to my immensity. And then in verse 16, he turns to one nation in particular, Lebanon, which was known for its cedar forests. And he says, if you took all the cedars of Lebanon and you put them all in a pile... And then you took all the beasts of Lebanon and you put them on top of the cedars and you lit that on fire as a sacrificial offering. Would that be sufficient as an act of worship to praise the greatness of our God? 
And the answer is, of course not. There's nothing that we can bring to God that is adequate. Yes, we should worship him with all our hearts, but I love this statement. Let's remember that to God, a fugue by J.S. Bach is like playing chopsticks. The only sacrifice acceptable to God, the only sacrifice that's ultimately pleasing to God is the life and blood of his own son that he poured out on the cross 2,000 years ago. That's the sacrifice that pleases him. And in verse 17, he turns back to the nations and he tells us all the nations are as nothing before him. All their wealth is as nothing before him. All the power of the nations, nothing All human opposition to God is like a feather on the scale of reality. The nations may rage and the peoples may plot in vain against the Lord and against his anointed Messiah. And all their stature and all their greatness compared to God, he says, it's less than nothing and emptiness to me. He's not threatened. God alone has life in himself. We do not. And anything we have is a gift from him. So who is God? He is the majestic, wise creator. And he is the sovereign Lord of the nations. And then thirdly, God is the only one in the universe to whom nothing can compare. And verse 18 brings us to the heart of the passage when it asks, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? That's the center of it all. Everything rises and falls around this. We want to control God. We want to define God. We want to put God in a box. But this verse confronts us with the stark incomparability of God. Nothing can compare with him. No eye can look upon him. No mind can can conceive him. No created thing can rival him. Any attempt to define him is an insult to him. So whenever we speak of God, there should be a sense of awe, a sense of breathlessness, that by speaking of God, we are attempting to describe what is ultimately and infinitely indescribable. Too often when we speak of God, We're like a person who goes to the shore of the Pacific Ocean with a little cup and puts it in there and fills it up with water and lifts it up and says, this is the ocean. When in reality, there's a vastness that is not at all contained within that cup. We do that with God. We reduce God to what little we can understand of him. Instead, we should follow the example of St. Augustine when he prayed this. O God, most high, most good, most powerful, most tender-hearted and most just, most remote and most present, most beautiful and most vigorous, stable and ungraspable, unchanging yet changing all things, never new yet never old, renewing all things, And what have we said, my God, my life, my holy delight? Or what can anyone say when he speaks of you? And alas for those 
who are silent about you. There's a man who has beheld his God and who understands nothing can compare with him. Now, if we turn away from the God who reveals himself in the Bible, we are left with nothing but our own thoughts and our own imaginations and the works of our own hands. And we will turn these things into objects of worship. We all have to worship something. We are innate worshipers. The only question is, is what you are worshiping worthy of your worship? In verses 19 and 20, Isaiah's words drip with sarcasm as he describes all the work that people go through to make an idol using products that God has created to craft an idol that they can turn around and worship. And it's laughable. Yet that's what our hearts are always doing. Our hearts are idol manufacturing centers. We're always prone to look to creative things, created things, to satisfy what only our creator can fulfill. And Isaiah is warning us here in verses 19 and 20 that all our idolatrous pursuits are going to rot. No idol that we make can move. This is, this is the bottom line of idolatry. We set up, look at the end of verse 20, an idol that will not move. What a contrast God is. What did we hear last week? God is on the move. God's the king who's coming down into our lives. God's the one who's going to fill the earth with his glory. And God's able to move into your life and transform you. And he's able to carry you like a shepherd. Not so the idols. No idol can come to us like God can with glory, majesty, tenderness, and care. So God is the majestic, wise creator. He is the sovereign Lord of the nations. He is the incomparable living and true God. And fourth, he is the active ruler of all the earth. Isaiah continues probing our hearts in verse 21 with these questions, pummeling us. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Why does Isaiah have to argue with us like this? It's because he knows we're numbskulls. We don't get it the first time we hear it. We need to hear it over and over and over again. The things that we know to be true about God often don't penetrate our hearts the way they should. And so Isaiah takes us by the shoulders and he looks us in the eye and he says, you've got to get this. You've got to let this sink in, what I'm telling you. And what is it that we need to get? Well, we need to get that we are poor and powerless. But God is the sovereign, all-sufficient ruler of the world and the ruler of our lives, and he's active in our world. Verse 22 pictures God sitting above the circle of the earth, and he's stretching out the heavens like a curtain and spreading them like a tent to dwell in. And where are we? We're hopping around on a little plot of ground down below like a grasshopper. That's who we are. All its inhabitants are like tiny grasshoppers, so weak, so minute, so insignificant. And yet, God is active in our lives. 
It's not the mighty and the powerful who are in control of the world. It's not the presidents and the prime ministers and the dictators who are really running things. They're under God's sovereign control. We see in verse 23 that God can reduce them to nothing in a second. They're just all an empty suit unless God fills them with power. He brings princes to nothing. He makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And in verse 24, all the egotistical power brokers of the earth who seem like big shots to us are compared to little seedlings of brushwood. And all it takes is one puff from God's mouth to drive them into oblivion. Scarcely are they planted. Scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So what is God wanting us to learn from this? He's wanting us to remember that he is the one who is in control of our lives. He is the one who is ordering our days and all the activities of all the inhabitants of the earth. He's in control of our politics. He's in control of nature. He's in control of all the details. We've seen his power this weekend in tragic ways as these violent tornadoes have swept through eight states, including our own. An Amazon plant in Edwardsville, Illinois, was demolished. And we heard of workers who were called in advance saying, don't come into work today. But then of others who weren't called and who did go in. Some lived, many died. And we look at this and we wonder, is anyone in control? Is this world just subject to fate? Is it really chaotic? Is there anyone at the wheel? And Isaiah, his answer, his answer is that God is on the throne. God is actively at work in the world today. And in his sovereign activity, he raises up some. He brings down others according to his own purposes and for his own glory. Colin Smith talks about a pastor in the early 1900s in England by the name of J. Stuart Holden. He had purchased two tickets for the maiden voyage of a new ship that many people were talking about at the time. About a week before the ship was to sail, Holden's wife became ill, and they were really disappointed that they weren't going to be able to go on this journey. So here they were, with two unused tickets to the maiden voyage of the Titanic. Well, it didn't take long before Holden realized God's hand in all of this. He had the tickets framed, and underneath he had the words inscribed, a testimony to the love of God. Several months later, a visitor came into their home, and he saw the, the tickets framed and the caption underneath, Mr. Holden, he said, that is a very moving picture, but I think you got the wrong 
inscription. Holden didn't know what to say. And the visitor went on to explain, I have a friend who did sail on the Titanic. He was an evangelist from Glasgow. His name was Mr. Harper. And he had been booked to speak at some meetings in the United States. And Harper led several people to Christ in the water before he drowned. Now, said the visitor, tell me, Mr. Holden, when you say a testimony to the love of God, did God love you more than he loved Mr. Harper? Holden just asked, what should I have written? You should have written a testimony to the sovereignty of God. God called you to glorify him in your life. God called Harper to glorify him in his death. Two servants of God, Harper and Holden, both loved by God. But in his sovereign plan, one of them was taken, the other remained. Kate and I often think about this in relation to our own cancer. This week we saw our oncologist again, another encouraging report, and we're grateful. It was 12 years ago that we were told it's terminal, it's stage four, it's inoperable. But then through the providence of God, God preserved her life. And then five years ago, another bout with cancer. And during this time, we've had lots of friends, dear friends, who've gotten sick, who've lost their lives. Why is this? Does God love Kate more than he loves others that we know who've gone to be with the Lord? No. It's a testimony to the sovereignty of God. He sits enthroned above all things. He is working his purposes out. He's active in all our lives. He is sovereign over us. That brings us to the fifth thing we see about God in this passage. God is attentive to every detail. That's the message we should take away from verses 25 and 26. Again, God asks us through the prophet, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. The Holy One. In the Bible, God's creative wisdom and power and majesty are always inseparable from his holiness. Everything we see in the heavens and on the earth should remind us that God is in a class by himself. He is holy Holy, holy. He is not like us. He is incomparable. And that's the only kind of God that can save us. And to press home the utter incomparability and majesty of God, Isaiah tells us to go outside on a clear night and to look up at the skies. Lift up your eyes on high and see, verse 26. Who created these? Teddy Roosevelt, the 26th president of the United States, was an outdoorsman, a conservationist, a very ambitious man. He was always the center of attention. His daughter Alice said of him, 
father always wanted to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. He loved to be in the middle of it all. But he also understood the majesty of God. And one night, the naturalist William Beebe was with Roosevelt out in nature, and they talked and talked through the night. And then Roosevelt said, let's go outside and look upon the stars. And they searched the skies for a certain spot of star-like light near the lower left-hand corner of the great square of Pegasus. And the president pointed and said, that is the spiral galaxy in Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of 100 million galaxies. It consists of 100 billion suns, each larger than our sun. And then he grinned and he said, now I think we are small enough. Let's go to bed. That should be the effect a passage like this has over our hearts. Gazing on the infinite, infinite immensity of God's majesty, we should realize how small we are, how great he is, and we should rest in the knowledge that he is able, more than able, to accomplish his purposes in our lives and in the universe. But I could imagine someone thinking, if God is so vast and we are so little, we're like grasshoppers, how do we even know he cares about us? Do we even matter to him? Is he even interested in us? That's where we got to read the rest of verse 26. As we gaze on the stars above, Isaiah doesn't want us only feeling small and insignificant. He also wants us to feel noticed and cared for. Look at what he says in the middle of the verse. He who brings out their host by number, and here's the phrase, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God knows the name of stars that no human eye has ever seen or will ever see. And Isaiah is telling us here that we don't live in a naturalistic universe. Everything we see isn't just running its course. There's a God in heaven who made all these things, it's by his power and by his attentive care that this universe is maintained in existence. And, and God in heaven is the one who brings out the stars every night. They're his light show, declaring to the world the glory of God. The skies are proclaiming his handiwork. He has a name for every star. He cares for even the smallest one. There's not a single one of them that's going to fall through the cracks and if he cares like this for the stars above, how much more does he care for you? How much more does he know your name? How much more is he aware and attentive to the details of your life? Don't read a passage like this and conclude, God is too great and I am too small for God to take an interest in me. Don't think God is too great to notice what's going on in my life. No. It's just the opposite. God is too great to overlook you. God is too great to fail you. That's the whole point of this passage. 
Verses 12 through 26 are there to validate the promises of verses 1 through 11. They're here to help us reach the same conclusion that Charles Spurgeon reached when he said this, As for his failing you, never dream of it. Hate the thought. The God who has been sufficient until now should be trusted to the end. That's the whole point of the gospel, isn't it? J.B. Phillips told the story like this. Once upon a time, a very young angel was being shown round the splendors and glories of the universe by a senior and experienced angel. To tell the truth, the little angel was beginning to be tired and a little bored. He had been shown whirling galaxies and blazing suns, infinite distances in the deathly cold of interstellar space. And to his mind, there seemed to be an awful lot of it all. Finally, he was shown the galaxy of which our planetary system is but a small part. As the two of them drew near to the star, which we call our sun, and to its circling planets, the senior angel pointed to a small and rather insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis. It looked as dull and dirty as a tennis ball to the little angel whose mind was filled with the size and glory of what he had seen. I want you to watch that one particularly, said the senior angel, pointing with his finger. Well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me, said the little angel. What's special about that one? That, replied his senior solemnly, is the visited planet. Visited? said the little one. You don't mean visited by... Indeed, I do. That ball, which I have no doubt looks to you small and insignificant and perhaps not overly clean, has been visited by our young prince of glory. And at these words, he bowed his head reverently. But how, queried the younger one, do you mean that our great and glorious prince with all these wonders and splendors of his creation and millions more that I'm sure I haven't yet seen went down in person to this fifth-rate little ball? Why should he do a thing like that? It isn't for us, said the senior a little stiffly, to question his whys, except that I must point out to you that he is not impressed by size and numbers as you seem to be. But that he really went, I know. And all of us in heaven who know anything know that. As to why he became one of them, how else do you suppose he could visit them? So next time you're frustrated, you're demanding to know why has God brought this trouble into my life? What if you shifted the focus to who? Who he is. What he has revealed to you about his purposes. And how he wants to work through your little life to bring glory to his great name. You might never learn the answer to your why questions, but God has told us an awful lot about who he is in his word. We know now that the almighty, 
became weak. The infinite became finite. The eternal stepped into time. He who was the ruler of all things became as nothing. Born in a manger, God sent his son. In the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those of us who were under the law, he came to visit us. And what that tells us is that we may trust him fully. And they who trust him wholly find him wholly true. Let's pray together.